This is our brave few who woke up to come listen and learn about textual criticism at 9 a.m. on Saturday morning. Quite a feat of mental fortitude. That's good. Hopefully we all learn together. We're going to do a fun activity this morning, so you're actually going to be doing some uh, work related to text criticism. So uh, I'll need some volunteers later on, but let me go ahead and pray to get our time started, and then we'll jump right in. Father, we're reminded of the scripture that tells us that your word is forever fixed in the heavens, and you have established the earth. And not one of us woke up this morning and doubted whether the earth was going to hold us up when we got out of bed. And we want that same kind of faith to, to apply to your word, that we would never even have a sense of doubt that it is a firm foundation for our feet and for our faith, and that this world needs to know it. So would you bless us now as we seek to study more about your word? And would you use us to be a blessing to others by pointing them to the truth of your word, to the light that shines from your word? And even now as we tackle a very difficult subject, one that, that many Christians have never even broached the edge of this subject, and yet we, we want to we jump in, we want to learn about it so that we can be better servants of you, we can be more useful in your kingdom work, whatever that may be. So thank you for this time. Help me to be clear in my communication, and may this all go to your honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so when I mention the term textual criticism, I'm going to guess that for most of you here, something negative immediately pops into your head, probably because of that term, criticism. Now, we do use the term, we talk about constructive criticism, right, which is meant to be something to help somebody, but it, it's meant in a more positive fashion. But um, as we're thinking today, I need you to, to try to turn off that negative sense of criticism and just let it be more of a sense of study, okay? So textual studies, right? The, the, the technical term is criticism, but um, I want you to have a more positive sense of that as we look at this subject today. I'm remembering one thing I forgot to show you yesterday. Joe's going to pull up the first slide for us here. I mentioned I was going to show you. Remember, at, during the period of the return and the exile, we have on the left here, this is what it looks like in a lot of modern Hebrew Bibles, okay? So that's called Aramaic block script. So I showed that to my son yesterday who's learning Hebrew, and he said, oh, I can read that, and he starts sounding it out, okay? Now Joe's going to pop up the next one, okay? This is the same language, okay? And yet when David and Solomon would have been writing, or their recorders and secretaries would have been writing down, they would have been using the alphabet that's on the right, Okay, so those letters we actually know from an inscription that was found inside the tunnel that Hezekiah's men cut to get a water supply into Jerusalem, and there's inscriptions in there, and it's written in this script. Okay, so this is the Hebrew script that was used before the time of the exile, and yet now, whenever we read the Hebrew Bible, we read it in the alphabet that's on the left. 
So again, that's just another example of the updating that occurred during that very important time of returning from the exile. All right, back to textual criticism. So if we think about what the goal of textual criticism is, and this will help you with that getting a positive sense of the term, the goal of textual criticism is to reproduce the original biblical text from this vast wealth of manuscript information. Okay? So we have a vast wealth of biblical manuscripts, and we need to use them and all that information to figure out what the originals said. So what did John actually write? What did Paul and Peter actually write? But the question might come to your mind, is this even helpful? Take a moment. I gave you some space there in your handout. Think about that question. How could a, a task like this, using all these different manuscripts that we have throughout history and spending lots of time studying them and comparing them to determine the original, how would that be helpful to the church? Go ahead and jot down a couple thoughts. A manuscript is, is a handwritten document. Mm -hmm. A manuscript is a handwritten document. So if a scribe wrote it in 300 A.D., and then we have another one from 400 A.D., and then we've got 10 of them from 500 A.D., and then we've got uh, 400 of them from, the, you know, from 600 A.D. Uh, all of those would be different manuscripts, and as we're going to talk in a little bit, all of them have very, very slight differences with one another because they're all handwritten. Okay? So why would this task of looking to reproduce the original text be helpful for the church. Think in terms of what Josh was talking about last night and maybe just some more practical sense. Why would this be helpful to the church if it is? Any thoughts? Okay, consistency, reliability, mm-hmm, exactly. Okay. Right, so uh, when we make copies, we want to make a copy of the best possible manuscript of the original, if, if at all possible. We want to be accurate. Uh, I liked how Josh ended last night talking about the canon the idea that God's word is self-authenticating. It proves itself to be God's word through all those various means that he talked about. And yet, when we do this kind of study, I think what it does is it gives us an additional layer of confidence in the face of all these, what we're going to call errors in just a minute. Okay, So we're going to look at what are in the text criticism world called errors or variants, and it can be very unsettling for people. But by doing this study to work through that process and not just run into a wall of errors and say, I'm, I give up. I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to believe in this book anymore. We push through that and we understand how it works. And I think it actually ends up giving us more confidence than we had before. Okay? So I hope that's not too confusing. But we, we, we want to start with this task of reproducing the original. And we're going to move through this process and, uh, and understand it. We need to know a little bit of background first, though, okay? So let's look at some of the differences between Old Testament and New Testament textual criticism. 
With Old Testament, we have, um, we have some issues because the Old Testament is much older than the New Testament. Okay? It's properly called an ancient document. It comes from before the time of Christ. And so today we have much fewer manuscripts. We actually have a very unique situation because um, Joe's going to pull up here the next point, the Masoretic text which I talked about this a little bit last night, comes from around the time 1000 A.D. Just fix that date in your mind, 1000 A.D. But the two most important manuscripts we have, one is from Aleppo, Syria, and the other is now housed in Leningrad, Russia, so it's called the Leningrad Codex. But these two, between these two documents, we have uh, Hebrew texts that were actually written by the Masoretes themselves and so if we want to talk about going back to the original Masoretic text, what, uh, what these guys were working on themselves, we don't have to go any further. We have the original. So after that, any copies after 1000 AD, they can be helpful, but they're kind of useless because we already have the originals from 1000 AD. So we're just going to go and consult those two. And um, most of the manuscripts in existence today come back to those two. So Again, we, we just go and look at those. We also have the Dead Sea Scrolls, which you can see a picture of right there. Again, it's got none of those point vowel points or anything on it. Okay, those come from around the time of Jesus, from about the second century BC until about 100 AD. So they were being written during that time. Um, the problem with the Dead Sea Scrolls is they're very fragmentary. A lot of times the pieces are only about this big. Okay. And so uh, they've done a lot of puzzle work to put them together and figure things out. We do have a couple larger scrolls that are actually intact. Um, but there's a couple problems with that. These texts were what, what you might call common texts. They weren't being uh, written by official scribes. So if you remember that video last night, you saw that room full of men kind of just informally in a little house sitting there writing all that work in Hebrew. That was meant to depict the guys that were doing the Dead Sea Scrolls, okay? So it, it was a group of people. They obviously knew how to write. They knew what they were doing. And yet the text that they were working with um, was, we could, we could say, substandard, okay? So it was just it was a, a, more of a group of commoners doing this work. And at times we find interpolations. We find things that are put into the text to help explain it. So again, the Dead Sea Scrolls are not going to be our best manuscript. The main value of the Dead Sea Scrolls is to confirm the fact that what we have in the Masoretic text from 1000 AD, okay, actually is a very faithful copy. So the Dead Sea Scrolls go back a thousand years before, they're very incomplete, and yet when you compare them one-to-one -one with the Masoretic text, almost always they're going to confirm that the Masoretes got it right, okay? So the main job with this kind of piecemeal, fragmentary text is to say, the, what we have from these guys was a faithful copy all through those years, okay? So that's the main job. We don't typically go back and look at the Dead Sea Scrolls as often to figure out what the original was. Pat? Who were the Masoretes? The Masoretes? Yeah, so uh, the term Mazar in Hebrew just refers to a tradition. So they were, they were men who faithfully were preserving their reading tradition. So again, if you just have the consonants of the text, you could read words a little bit differently here or there, 
And so they knew the oral reading tradition. You read the text this way. And what they did is they ended up writing that in with all those dots and little squiggles and lines, which we call the accents and the vowels. You put the, they put those in, and they kind of made that innovation around the time 1000 AD. Yeah, so they lived in the Middle East. Um, uh, the, the big area where they lived was called the town of Tiberias, which is by the Sea of Galilee. Mm-hmm. So they lived in that region, and actually in that region, many people were still speaking Hebrew at the time the Masoretes were writing down their copy. So this was a very uh, real-life thing for them. This was not just a historical exercise. They were bringing on the reading tradition, and they were seeking to pass it on to the future by writing it into the documents that they had. Okay. The other important document you need to know about is the Septuagint. We talked about that a little last night. Okay. Again, that's a Greek translation from about the second, third and second century BC. So again, just before the time of Christ, this is one of the reasons that the early church could use it as its Old Testament because it was a translation of the Old Testament into Greek. And so they're using that um, throughout the Mediterranean world uh, to read the Old Testament. So a lot of times, um, we'll look at what the Masoretes have, and we'll look at what the Septuagint says in Greek, and obviously it's a translation into another language. It's not in Hebrew anymore. And yet, very often, those two are lining up with one another. So it it seems that whatever these guys were copying 1,200 years before the Masoretes, it was something incredibly similar to what we have from the Masoretes. So again, it, it serves to often reinforce confidence but oftentimes, if we want to figure out what, there's a question about, did this text have this word or this word? We'll look at the Septuagint and try to figure out, was he making a very literal translation? Was he, was he trying to make an explanatory translation? So you can see how when you're working with translations, all of a sudden, it's not as helpful. There's also something called the Targums. The Targums, they were in Aramaic. So if you remember from our history lecture last night, when they came back from Babylon, many of the Jewish people were speaking Aramaic at the time. In fact, we have passages in Ezra about the priests having to help people understand what the Hebrew was saying. Okay, so the Targums ended up occurring around the time of Jesus, and a little bit afterwards, they started to be written down. But this is the official Pharisaic interpretation of the Hebrew text. A lot of times, it's a word-for-word translation of the Hebrew into Aramaic, and it was written down so that it could help people better understand what was there. And in some places, especially like the Song of Songs and that sort of thing, <laughs> you get very—you uh, might have 10 words in Hebrew, and you'll have about 50 in Aramaic. So at that point, it's functioning more like a commentary, but in the book of Genesis, it's going to be one word in Hebrew, one word in Aramaic. It's just going through and pretty much translating for us. So again, the Targums can be helpful to understand um, if what we have in the Hebrew text is accurate. And by and large, it's confirming that. So when we talk about textual criticism, trying to figure out what the, the uh, Old Testament originally said, it's a, it's a much smaller issue. Okay? We're mainly comparing the Masoretic text. We're comparing sometimes the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Septuagint, and we're looking at things like the Targums. And occasionally, there's other translations out there. But... You can, that's pretty simple, right? We're looking at four different things. What, what, what did this say? What did this say? What did this say? We'll look at them. Oh, most of the time it comes down and says, what the Masoretes had, that was pretty, pretty good. Okay? 
So we, we, can, we, can, we can look at it that way. When we move over to New Testament textual criticism, we have a different situation. In New Testament text criticism, we have over 5,700 Greek <coughs> manuscripts. So this is not including the Latin translations. This is not including any other languages. We have over 5,700 Greek manuscripts. And again, to Pat's question, a manuscript is a handwritten copy. Okay, so these go all the way back to, as far as we know right now, the second century, and then moving up through the Middle Ages up to the time of the printing press. Okay? There's a real wide variety of good manuscripts, and the main job in New Testament text criticism is to compare these in each point to look for the best internal and external evidence for any given variant. So let's, let's look at that word variant there because uh, that can be a little bit unsettling for some people. There's variants in my Bible. Well, if you've ever looked at the footnotes in your ESV, NIV, or any of these others, oftentimes down there it will tell you uh, if there is a major variant at any given point. So if you see a footnote marker, you look down there, it'll say, it'll say you know, they made a choice that this was the best reading, but it will sometimes give you another option down there in the footnote. For any lengthy document, there are no two handwritten copies that are the same. For any document of length, if you have two people hand copy it, they're not going to be exactly the same. Now those could be 99.99% accurate, but if one guy misspells a word in the middle of Mark, guess what? That's a variant. You may even be able to look at the word and know exactly what the word is and know that he just misspelled that, but it still counts as a variant. So when we think of word variants, you don't need to think of suddenly somebody you know, took the name of Jesus out and put something totally different in there. Okay? It's, as, it's things as simple as a misspelling, things as simple as the word the not being there, which in Greek is just one letter, and sometimes doesn't even grammatically need to be there for you to understand that there's a proper article in front of it. So anything misspelled, any skipped or added words, any change of a verb form counts as a variant. Nine of ten copies could have exactly the same thing, but because there's one variant among those ten, we have to say, oh, well, there is one variant, and so that's how we count them. So, brace yourselves. Among these 5,700-plus Greek manuscripts we have, there are over 400,000 variants. Nobody seems very shocked. <laughs> okay, Pat's saying that's, that's not too bad. Okay. I want to read a couple quotes here from uh, someone who's pretty involved in textual criticism. Uh, his name is James White. I've got one of his books up here if you want to come look at it later. But he says this, If we only had a single manuscript of the New Testament, how many variants would we have? Well, none, of course, right? Because <laughs> you've only got one. The problem is that a single manuscript could have been changed, and how would we know it? We would have nothing with which to compare it. While the idea of having no variants may sound great, variants actually are a natural byproduct of having lots and lots of handwritten manuscripts. And the more manuscripts you have, the better as far as making sure you have today, what today accurately reflects what was originally written. Okay, does that make sense? If I had 10 people 
working on a copy of the book of John, and in John 3.16, person number one made a mistake, but the other nine got it right, and we have all ten of their copies, we can say, there's a variant in John 3.16, but we know exactly what it said, because nine out of ten got it right, and just one person happened to misspell the word believe over there. Okay, they switched their I and their E around. <laughs> all right? It, it could be that simple. Let me read another quote here. We must emphasize that 99% of the 400,000 variations are irrelevant to the proper translation and understanding of the Greek text. The number of meaningful New Testament variants drops to a more realistic number of 4,000. This represents about 2.9% of the text or so, meaning ver- uh, or one meaningful variant for every three pages or so of the New Testament. Okay? So, again, it's more helpful to talk about meaningful variants than it is to talk about just variants in the end. But one last note from uh, James White here. The simple fact of the matter is that no textual variance in either the Old or New Testament in any way, shape, or form, material disrupt or destroy any essential doctrine of the Christian faith. Okay? So, our belief in the deity of Christ doesn't come from one passage in the Bible. We get that from many different places. So even if one of those passages happens to have a meaningful variant, that's not going to destroy the doctrine of the deity of Christ in any way, shape, or form. And just saying that something has a meaningful variant doesn't mean that we can't do the, heavy, the hard work of textual criticism to figure out what John actually wrote there. Okay? So again, if you hear people talking about all these variants or all these, me- there's, a, there's a significant variant in the verse John 3.16, you don't need to be unsettled by that because again, our doctrine doesn't come down to one passage and just by mentioning the fact that there is a variant doesn't mean that we don't know what was originally there. We can do the hard work of comparing all these different manuscripts to figure out what was actually written. Okay? So I've tried to simplify it a little bit, but now we're going to get into a little bit of the difficulties. And so I'm going to need your help here. Okay? We don't have that many people. I'm going to need six volunteers. Six brave volunteers. Brian's going to volunteer. I need, I need three volunteers to sit over here. I'm going to need three volunteers to come sit right up here. One, two, three in front of each other. Okay, so Brian's going to have a seat right there. Someone go sit behind Brian. Pat going to lead this team over here. Okay, you're going to get voluntold in a second if you, don't, if you don't, uh, don't volunteer. I need one more person over here, and I need two more people right here. All right. Josh, you want to come on B number three over here? Thank you. Oh, I need someone over here still. We can have female scribes too. All right, we're going to make all the men do all the work here. Okay. All right. So what I have here is two copies of the same text. Okay? And we're going to do a little exercise. And your job as a team is to copy the text. You're going to have a time limit, so you need to keep moving. And I'll, I'll warn you that your time is running out. Okay? And when you are done, you're to hand your new copy to the person behind you who will then copy your copy. Does that make sense? Questions? 
Do I have a pen? You're not a very well-prepared scribe. <laughs> I think this team's looking better over here. All right, well, this team over here, I'm going to give you this text, okay? So you have this clipboard, so put one copy here, and here's the copy that you can write, and then here's extra paper behind. So, do, so Pat, do not give this to Sydney. Only give him your copy and some blank paper, okay? Sydney, no looking over his shoulder, all right? Go ahead, get started whenever you're ready. Uh-oh, scribes have to get ready. Poor eyesight is something we're going to talk about in a sec. And if you're worried about taking notes, I can send you all my notes here. And this part, the notes are, are very simple, okay? But I'll, I can send them all to you if you want this stuff. All right, this group over here. Here you go, no clipboard for you. Piece of paper. All right, your five minutes is going, so. Five minutes each. Five minutes each, yep, five minutes each. Which I did it this morning, and I was writing nonstop. And it took me about four minutes. So you can do it, but uh, you're going to have to keep moving. You're going to have to keep working. All right. Now, I want to talk about what we're going to see here in just a minute. We're going to see some intentional and unintentional errors that are going to happen. When you copy something down by hand, and any of us know this who use a computer also, when you type, you make keystroke errors, you misspell things, and the spell checker tells you, hey, you typed that word wrong. You might have thought you typed it right, okay? The same thing happens with handwriting, okay? So unintentional and intentional errors. Let's look first at this idea of unintentional errors, okay? There are errors of the eye. You can look at something and, and see a wrong division between words. This group over here is going to really have that problem, okay? <laughs> errors of the eye, not seeing the words properly on the page. You could or omit words, okay? Based on, you might see the word of here, and then three words later, the word of comes up again. So you write the word of, and then you, you look down at your paper and write the word of, and then you look back and you looked at the other word of. And guess what? Those words in the middle, they got skipped. But you just keep going, because your job is to do as much copying as you can in that day, because it takes so long. And it may not be until days, weeks, months later that someone goes back and notices that, hey, some words got skipped there. It may not even get noticed at all. And that manuscript will then have a, what's it called? A variant at that place. Those words that got left out, okay? But the guy that was sitting right next to you didn't do that. And the 10 other people in that same room didn't do that same error. So again, uh, it doesn't need to freak us out about any of this, but we do need to be aware that this is just how things work when you're, you're writing. All right, group, you're halfway done, so keep going. Keep those, keep those pens moving. There's also um, repetitions, unintentional repetitions of words, okay? You, you may see, you see the word, and then, and then instead of going ahead, your eyes actually go backwards to the other of, and then you repeated part of a line. So that, that got put in there two times, okay? This can happen. Or switching things around. Just based on the way you see things, you could transpose some of the words. Errors of the eye. Errors of the earer. Errors of the ear. Remember we talked yesterday about how things changed after the conversion of Rome? And then we move into a monastic setting, and I talked about scriptoriums, where someone might be up here reading the book of Romans, and all of you out there would have something to be copying and writing it down. 
There's so many errors of the e but often these are misspellings, okay? Misspellings because it relies on your own knowledge of that language to be able to do it, many of whom it's not their first language, okay? Especially if the scriptoriums were in the West and they were copying a Greek manuscript, they may know Greek, but they don't know it as well as they know Latin or the vulgar language that they grew up with, okay? So again, a lot of errors can happen that way. Errors of memory. You know, we have a lot of passages in the Gospels that are very similar, but they're not the same. And you may hear it, or you may see it one way, and you think, oh, I know this, and then just go on and finish it the way Matthew wrote it, but you're copying Luke. You're not copying Matthew. And so an error of memory might cause you to make a slight error, an unintentional error in the copying of the text. Errors of judgment. Maybe you have a poor manuscript. Maybe a bug ate a hole in the page at that spot, and you don't know if it's an A or an O. All right, well, you gotta make your best guess. Sometimes poor manuscripts or poor lighting. Okay, if we turn the lights off on this side of the room, it's probably gonna change how well you can do. All right, you got about 30 seconds, group. So finish up. I'm serious about this. This is God's word you're copying here. All right, or there might be marginal notes. Perhaps you're copying. Uh, you can look at some of these columns up here and you can see uh, how it was typically written. And sometimes there'd be a small note written in the margin. And you may have to decide as the scribe, was that, did he skip something earlier and then he wrote it in the, in the margin and he wants me to put it back in? Or is that just a note to, to the next guy? And you don't know because you can't ask the guy who originally copied it. So you have to make a judgment. Should I put that in there or should I leave it in the margin? And um, those are errors of judgment or errors of writing. Okay? I gave you computer printed copies, but... Uh, your handwriting might, might not be quite as good. <laughs> okay, so if you can't read Brian's handwriting, we're gonna have some issues here. Okay, I really want you to finish up. Really want you to finish up, okay? We need to pass to the next, pass to the next generation here. Pass to the next generation here. All right, well, you, you're gonna have to do your best. Okay, give him, the, give him the clipboard. Pat, you can give him the clipboard. Just take the, take the words off, give him the clipboard. Okay. Here you go. You want something to write on? Here. Okay, you can put this, the other one on that if that helps you. All right. All right, this group over here. Yeah, that'd be good for, for honesty's sake. All right. Okay, Dan's doing his best over here. Uh, Annette, I'm going to need some help. Valerie, you want to help too? You want to help, Valerie? Okay. Here you are. Well, you know, the emperor has decreed that anyone caught with a Bible needs to be persecuted. And I'm pretty sure that Dan over here has a Bible. So you do what you got to do. Well, I, I gave foam weapons for, for a reason. So go ahead and whack away. Don't, don't make this easy for him. Don't make it easy for him. Here, let me, let me show you how you persecute somebody, right? I'll give him his pen. He, he can have his pen. He can have his pen. No, this has to be painful. Come on, Dan. Get writing. Come on, Valerie. Help her out. Okay. Continue the persecution. Oh, and Dan, you just lost a minute. You got, you got one less minute than this group over here. Okay. 
Dan's situation is becoming a little more difficult over here, but such was the situation. Oftentimes, oh, okay. Terry, help persecute. All right, I'll, I'll persecute over here. Okay, so you can see how the, the situation has become a little more difficult for somebody who's having to copy under duress, under difficult circumstances. All right. Did we do this the whole The whole four minutes. Uh, maybe we'll give him a break. Well, how about I start on Terry, and that way he won't be able to take it. Oh, well, Terry's the next generation, so. All right, you can have a seat. Hopefully we distracted him a little bit. I want to talk about the issue of intentional errors. Intentional errors. Keep going there, Sydney. Doing good. Okay, now when I say intentional, again, don't assume a bad motive. Okay? Intentional error just means that something changed uh, intentionally, right? It's not that the person was trying to write Jehovah's Witness doctrines into the text, okay? What we're talking about here are things like spelling changes, okay? Um, clearly seeing, wow, this manuscript spells it this way, but we don't spell it that way anymore. Changing the spelling, okay? Something like that. Uh, liturgical changes, okay? A lot of people think that uh, the way we, many of us have memorized the Lord's Prayer at the very end, how does it end? Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever was something that people just added as a prayer when they spoke the Lord's Prayer in worship services and that it actually got put into the text when it was copied. Okay, so it, there could be things like that that happened. Harmonization. Someone, uh, we talked about it before, but it was, oh, I know this text, and just from memory starts writing it out on accident. But someone could say, this manuscript left out the, these other words over here, but I know what, I know what it says. It says this in Matthew, and it should say this here too. So the scribe thinking that these two texts should say the same thing, but really Matthew said something different than Luke said. Okay? So there's a situation there. Or historical updates. Okay? We have some examples of that. Conflation of two documents. That would be an intentional change, maybe not for the worse, if I took this nice computer-printed copy over here and handed it to Dan, and Dan had a long time to work on his manuscript, he might be able to figure out if Brian made any errors. right? Because look, this was a first-generation document, and he's working on a second-generation document. So if, if he had two things to compare, he could say, oh, I think that this document has a problem here, and he chooses to, to switch over to this one at that point. That would be an intentional change or an intentional quote-unquote error. And sometimes we have examples of doctrinal clarification. Maybe the, the text they're copying looks like there's a problem uh, and they, they put a, you know, a marginal note in and then later on that marginal accidentally gets inserted as part of the text and things have, have been clarified. So again, uh, it's harder to tell with these things. It's easier to guess when someone just made a mistake in their copying. But there are examples that we have of potentially scribes making intentional, not bad, but intentional changes to the text. All right, we're going to move quickly through so we can look at some examples here. Uh, this group, need to pass those texts. Come on, pass it back. Yep, your final form of persecution right here. Hey! Here you go. Yep, 
And I get this. That's what you got. That's what you got. All right, let's run quickly through a couple principles of textual criticism. Okay, so how do we actually do it? Someone, just, someone looks at, uh, we, we come to a text, and there's an example where the manuscripts have a variant at a certain spot. How do we determine what the original said? The first thing to look at is the external evidence. The external evidence. So this is on your handout, is the principles of text criticism your principles of text criticism, the external evidence. We'll look at, let's just simplify it for the sake of discussion. Say we've got two manuscripts. This one says X and this one says Y. What we're going to do is we're going to look at the age of the documents. Which one is older? Okay? That's not the determining factor, but it is a determining factor, the age of the document. We're going to look at where they came from, the location, we're going to look at the family of documents that they came from. Okay? So those are the main things to be looking at there. The greater diversity of witnesses speaking uh, to a certain variant, X or Y, also favors that as well. We'll cover that in just a moment. Okay? So we're looking at the external evidence. To look at the internal evidence would be to look at the context of the passage. Okay? So here's, this text says X, and this text says Y. If I go back and read all the verses before and the verses after, which one of those words made more sense? Does it make more sense to have X or have Y in this passage? So that could be a little bit more subjective, perhaps, but looking at the internal evidence, the context of the passage, and comparing it to the author's style. Okay? The book of Romans is not the only thing we have written by Paul. So when he talks about faith, how does he do that across Romans and Galatians and Ephesians and all these other books? So you can look at other places in the Bible and say, nine out of ten times, Paul talks about faith this way. So it's more likely that the, he, he would have said it X instead of saying Y in this situation. Again, that's not the only determining factor, but you put all of these things together and it helps you make a decision which one of these two words would Paul have used here? So here's some guiding principles. Some guiding principles. When you have to come and make the decision, text critics will look at it and they will prefer the older reading to a newer reading. Okay? So if we have older manuscripts, that's going to be more likely that because there was less copying that took place. So less chance that that's actually an error. Preferring the shorter reading. Most of the time, things are going to be added to a manuscript, not taken away. So preferring a shorter reading tends to be the best option. Preferring the more difficult reading. Again, with all those possible errors, a scribe is going to read something and see something that sounds kind of funny and try to make it sound less funny. But probably the original was something that sounded a little bit difficult. So preferring a difficult reading preferring the reading that explains the others. If we have X, Y, Z, A, B, C as options, there's six different variants all in the same verse. Well, which one could, we explain, could explain how all the others came to be? Okay. So again, take for example, we have the word of, and skipping to the next word of. We, did, did these words in the middle get added, or did they get dropped out? Well, if 
we look at all those different factors, we might be able to explain, oh, it, clearly over here they, they just dropped out. It, it, in, in this document over here, they didn't get added. They got dropped out over here because of all these reasons we can look at. And then also, looking at which one has the widest degree of support. So if you have a document from Egypt, a document from Italy, and a document from North Africa on one side saying X is the reading, and you have one document over here from uh, near Jerusalem that says this is the reading, well, these documents are from all different places and from different time periods, whereas over here we just have one. Most likely this was the original reading. So these are the principles that help guide people in making decisions. So you probably want to look at some examples, right? We've talked about this enough. Let's look at some examples. The major examples you need to be aware about, there's two of them, is the ending of Mark, Mark 16, 9 to 10. I think I put these on your handout. And John 7, 53 through 8, 11. You're going to see in your Bibles that these are probably going to have brackets around them. They're going to have brackets around them. All right, how are we doing, scribes? About done? Finished? All right. Before we jump into these examples, let's go ahead and uh, put those down. Okay, you want to hand them up here? I'll have an impartial reader look at it later. Which one, which one is yours, Josh? This one in black? Okay. A question, Pat? Exactly. Good job. All right, Terry. Which one's yours? The blue one? Okay. Yes. All right, if you guys want to go back to your seats, you can, or you can stay on your team, cheer people on. If anyone, anyone else need questions, cards? Okay. All right, so I've got these. We're going to... Nope, you keep that. We don't need that. What's up? Say again? Yes, yes. So, for example, let's say Dan passed his manuscript back to Terry, and then Pat, we'll call him Justinos for a second, okay? Justinos heard that they were being persecuted over here on this side of the aisle. And so he traveled across the Mediterranean with his own copy of that book, the own co his own copy, and he took it and he went to visit Dan. And now Dan has two copies. And Dan could look at them and say, wow, I can read this one better. This one's older than the one I just got here. And he could do some of that comparing himself. You could call it revising if you want to, but... What he's revising is not the Bible or the original, but he's revising the copy that he has. So the, the hearing came later. That was more after the year 500 did you get groups where people were just reading it out. Before the year 500, almost all the copying was done by looking at this and going to the next one. And even after the year 500, that was still taking place. But... You were copying another copy. And sometimes, for example, we did it one to one to one. A lot of times, the original copy would have been copied 10 times. 
And then all 10 of those may have been copied 10 more times in the next generation. So it's how you've got hundreds of copies that could all be traced back to that original that I gave to Pat over here, right? So it's not just one to one to one to one. We're just doing it for the sake of illustration, and we don't have a lot of people. Right, they didn't have to do any speed writing either. So uh, did anyone look up those passages in your Bible, Mark 16 or John 7.53? Did it have brackets around it? What, what does it say in your note? Okay, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include Mark 16, 9 to 20. So, you may have never noticed that before. I'm just bringing it to your attention that those two passages are the longest New Testament variants that we have. And for tradition's sake, they've been included in there, but the editors have tried to put brackets around them just to help you understand, hey, we want you to know that these aren't in the earliest manuscripts. Many people would say that they're not original, that... Mark and John did not actually write those, that they were added later on. Especially because John, the passage comes right in the middle. Many people will read up to John 7.52, and you jump to John 8.12, and it seems there's a pretty seamless, seems like you could just keep reading, and there's not too much of a hiccup, okay? Um, one, Old Test, or one New Testament text critic describes that in John. It's the story of the woman caught in adultery. Okay, so we all know that story pretty well, don't we? <laughs> he describes that as his, his favorite Bible story that's not actually in the Bible. Because <laughs> he doesn't understand it to be a biblical story, but he understands it to be a great story that may actually be a true story about Jesus, but he doesn't believe that John wrote it in the Gospel. So uh, you need to be aware of those two passages in particular. I want, I want some people to look up a couple minor examples for us, though. Okay, so any of you that have Bibles... Can I get someone to look up John or Luke 17:36? Okay, and then uh, John 5:4. Brian's got John 5:4. Lola, can you get Acts 8:37? And Annette, can you do 1 John 5:7? Tell me when you get there. You're there, Annette. What's Okay. Do you have a note there or anything? That's a pretty short verse. Okay. Okay. And there's probably, at least in my Bible, there's a huge footnote because 1 John 5 7 is one of those very controversial ones where they think that a marginal note got actually put in there. And so if you look at something like the King James, it'll be in there. Okay, so yours just doesn't even have a note there. Okay. Anyone else find their verse? Lola, did you find yours? It has brackets around it. Okay, so one individual verse does. In my Bible, it wasn't even there. It was in the footnote. And it said, many of the original ones don't have that verse. Brian, what was yours? John 5, 7? Or John 5, 4? Okay, so it goes from John 5.3 to John 5.5 5 in the main text of your Bible, okay? And uh, same thing? 36 is not there, 
Okay. I would much rather you learn that here than on the internet or have someone telling you that outside of here. Because in the context we've been talking about, help me understand, why, why would your modern Bibles have those in the footnotes? Or say that they're omitted or they're not uh, in the original, uh, the oldest manuscripts? Say again? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Specifically for you that your whole number was dropped out. Think about that. At some point in the history of our English Bibles, that was actually, the verse was in there. But then, more and more manuscripts were discovered, Greek manuscripts were discovered, and those manuscripts didn't have that verse there. And older and older manuscripts were discovered, and we saw, those don't have it either. So at some point, a verse got put in there, or a note perhaps was put in at that place, or a scribe made a, a, a change at that place, and those copies were used to translate something like the King James Bible. But then, later on, we discovered older and older manuscripts that the King James translators didn't have. So we have to make the honest decision. So I love that our Bibles still include that stuff in the footnotes. Because what it's showing us is the history of the Bible and our understanding of it. And yet, they're saying, in our best judgment, we don't think that this verse was actually there. Okay, The oldest... The, ones we, the, the Greek texts we have from 300 AD don't have that verse in it. So we don't think that it should be in the Bible today. But we still want you to know what it said for the history and for the sake of tradition. Okay? Questions about that? Yeah, so they're, they're discovering documents regularly. Um, unfortunately, I'm not enough of a text critic to know uh, the, the biggest finds and that sort of thing. I do know that there is a copy of the Gospel of Mark right now that they're looking at to see if it's possibly the oldest one that we have in existence, which you could see for the verses that are still existing there could potentially influence uh, what they use in the future. Um, Yeah, so a lot of times translators are using a book like this, just a, a critical edition of the New Testament. And if you want to come up and look at it later, you can see here's the Greek text, and down at the bottom are all these notes. And these notes tell you the manuscripts where you can find a certain reading and where you can find another one. And they'll tell you which one they think is the best reading, which is what appears up here. But they also want you to know all these other manuscripts said it this way. So nobody's hiding anything. All the information is available for you to see. And remember, none of this is affecting any bit of doctrine or understanding of the Christian faith. It sometimes is coming down to the spelling of a word and just one little Greek letter is changed. Okay? 
But this would this be valuable for you to come up here and see, even if you, if you don't understand all of it. I want to look at a couple more examples. One of them is actually a very recent example uh, to Brian's question. Uh, Joe, can you bring up the next slide for us? Okay. So here we have what's in the ESV on the left, and on the right, I've done my best to, to just basically take the ESV and change it so that you can see what the footnote says. Hey, there are these other Greek manuscripts that talk about it this way. Okay? So let's look at these examples here. John 1.18, very well-known verse, huh? The ESV says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. We have some texts, some Greek manuscripts that do say, No one has ever seen God, the only Son who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Are we going to question the divinity of Jesus because of a variant at that place? If you knew Greek, I would show you the difference between the word theos and weos, which is the difference between God and Son. They look very similar. So you could easily understand how uh, the word theos, if the manuscript was bad or, or something happened, would become the word huios. You can, they even sound, they end the same. The, the last two letters are exactly the same. The first two, look, first two letters look very similar. Um, but that is a variant reading, and yet most of our translations today now will say something like the ESV says, because the oldest and best manuscripts seem to confirm that. Romans 14.9. Okay, this is a difference of a verb change. So then let us pursue what makes for peace. Or if you change one letter, one letter in the Greek word, it would be translated this way. So then we pursue what makes for peace. So is it a, is it a command? Or is it just a statement? It, mm -hmm. Yeah. And so that's, that's a good thing when we use translations. We have the benefit as uh, English speakers of having multiple translations to be able to look at a lot of translations and, and to see where there's some differences. Um, I don't think any of us are going to question the doctrine of should we pursue peace or are we, are we peacemakers? Uh, I, both of them are wonderfully true. <laughs> you are right. If, we are, if we're having an intense Bible study about this one little question, about this verse, Romans 14.9, that, that may cause us to have some more questions. And we can go to some wonderful commentaries to help us look at that, and then we can see, now why did they decide that this is the best one? I'm going to guess that a variant of this significance is going to be discussed in a good commentary. Or here's one that was very recent, Brian. This is one change that uh, has happened in the past dozen years. Okay? Now I want to remind you that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, okay, for many, many years... It was translated as this. Now I want to remind you that the Lord who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. Okay? Uh, it's the same person. <laughs> Jesus and the Lord. But the difference of the word. Right? The difference of the word. And in their understanding of the text, as you'll find in here, uh, Jesus would be the best and oldest reading at this place. Why at some point it may have changed to the Lord? Um, Again, I don't think that's anything that needs to shake our faith, but we should be aware okay, that these changes are out there and all the information is available to those that know how to read it and understand these sorts of things. I want to look at one full example 
And then we're going to conclude by looking at how our scribes did here. John 6:47. Joe's going to pull it up here. Okay, so again, don't, don't get intimidated there. But, and by this example, I'm not picking on the King James Version, but I'm just using it because it's an English translation that was done hundreds of years ago before they discovered a lot of Greek manuscripts that are very, very old. And so the King James translators were doing the best with what they had in terms of Greek manuscripts. They translated, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Okay, so ignore the changes in the English and just look at the change in the text. Today we have, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Some of you might be saying, so what? <laughs> it's not that significant of a change. Um, I want to point out, as you can see there in the notes, the internal evidence shows in John 6.35 and in John 6.40, so again, in the context of this verse, Jesus says, believe in me, John 6.35. And in John 6.40, he says, whoever believes in him, in other words, in the Son. So right within the same speech, Jesus is directing faith towards himself. So are we going to question whether our faith needs to be in Jesus or just any old person to have eternal life? I don't think that's possible if you're just an honest reader of the text. But if we want to be objective and say, what did John actually write that's where we're doing the work of text criticism. Did, did John write in 647, believes in me, or did he write believes? Uh, if you look there underneath, you see all these funny-looking symbols, okay, that all stand for different really old manuscripts, some of them very valuable. The, the funny-looking letter P there stands for a papyrus, okay? The... Uh, the first ones there, the P66, P75, that funny-looking Hebrew letter, and the letter B, all stand for some of the four of the oldest manuscripts of John that we have. And they all support the reading that just says, whoever believes. Now, think back to all those scribal errors I talked about. Can you see how, if the original said, whoever believes has eternal life, that a scribe would have eventually written believes in me as eternal life? Could you see how that would happen? He's just translated, or he's just copied down John 6.35 before. He's already got that phrase in his head, believes in me, and he gets down to 6.47, believes, and he just adds in me. Because it was in his head from just a few minutes ago, having copied that, and then that copy gets copied and spread around, and eventually, when the King James translators were working, that was one of the copies that they had, that they were consulting. So again, uh, hopefully you're seeing how this works. But again, look under there in the conclusions. Again, the ESV reading is shorter. It's more difficult. Okay? We, we like it when everything's the same. If, it all, if Jesus always said, believes in me, believes in me, believes in me. It's more difficult to think, oh, well, Jesus varied up his speech. <laughs> And finally, as I just pointed out there, the ESV reading explains how we got the King James reading there. So you can read your King James Bible with confidence. It's God's word. You're not going to be led astray in terms of doctrine or anything. But it is important for us as Christians to be aware of these sorts of things and all the work that's going on. And all this information is available. All right, Joe, can you pop up for us real quick uh, the next slide here? All right, this group over here, I'm real sorry, but that's what... 
for everyone's uh, knowledge, that's what Brian started with. Okay, what I gave him, that's what he saw. It's called scripto continuum, right? There's no spaces between the letters, they're all in capital letters. You can come over and see an example of that up here on the table in an actual ancient Greek document. Are you picking it out? Can you read it? I was making Benaiah do it this morning. Okay? He was doing it, but he was very slow. It's very difficult to read that way, isn't it? Can you joke, pop up the next one for us? Okay. That's actually what it's saying. Let's, let's see how our groups did. I'm going to use actually the nice, nice copy we have up here. All right. In the beginning was the word, and the word was W slash God, and the word was God. What's it say up there? Word was good. Okay. So that's what, that's what I had typed. But again, you can see how you think you know the text, and you just write that but really the word was good. The word said, let there be light, and there was light and shine in the darkness. Okay, so a little bit different. Again, we're familiar with how it actually says in the Bible, but I changed things a little bit here. The darkness would not stand if we see the light. It will give us knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Okay, so we, we obviously had some problems with the persecution over here, didn't we? We had, we had a bad text that was all crumpled up and had been eaten up a little bit. How'd this group over here do? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was good. The Word said, let there be light, and there was. Light shone in the darkness, and the darkness could not understand it. We see this light, and it gives us the knowledge of the glory of God in the love of Messiah Jesus. Okay, so we had a little bit of a change there. Okay, but you can see how uh, under constraints, and obviously this is completely artificial, but how handwritten documents have changes. And yet, if I had had five people copy what Pat wrote and five people copy what, and we had dozens and dozens, indeed thousands of manuscripts to compare, we could probably get back to what this says up here. So that is the blessing of having so many manuscripts and having so many variants is that it allows us to, as best possible, reproduce what the original said. So I want to re reaffirm two things here at the end. Remember, less than 3% of the New Testament contains something we could call a meaningful variant. Okay? None of these variants call into question any Christian doctrine. And lastly, we don't need text criticism to trust God's word. But we can thank God for such a gift. Okay? There's an incredible amount of evidence in here for the historicity of the Bible and what it actually says. That the truths contained in here are actually what the apostles wrote and what they wanted to communicate to us. So it may be confusing. Hopefully, this lecture's just opened your eyes a little bit and clarified some things, but. Uh, I, I'm willing to answer questions about it later, but hopefully this has been helpful and serves as another form of evidence to strengthen your faith that what we have in the Bible and all the hard work that's gone into getting back to the original is actually what God wants us to read and understand and apply to our lives. What we're going to do now is uh, take a short break.
So you can go to the bathroom if you want. I think we got some coffee and some treats downstairs. So let's just take a little bit of time to fellowship together. Try to get back here about, uh, about 10.35, and we'll get started with our next session. Josh is going to talk about what the Bible says about itself. Okay?